Hello, and welcome to the week in Reorg Europe. My name is Ben Kovaka, and I'm a distressed data analyst here at Reorg. With me, I have senior legal analyst Chetna Mistry, legal analyst Chang Qureshi, and reporter Harvard Jang, who will discuss House of Fraser and the status of the English common law rule, the rule in Gibbs, against the backdrop of new English court decisions and Brexit. First, let's have a look at what moved the market. In the last two weeks, one of the most topical stories has been Turkey and all the credits beyond Turkey and in Turkey with exposure to the country. Turkey's corporates, many of which are reliant on hard currency financing, are facing inflationary pressure of almost 16% in July, combined with a devaluation of the lira and an escalating sanctions and tariff war with the US. Lira lost 40% of its value against dollar year to date. Eurobond prices of some of Turkey's largest banks have dropped steadily over the past few months, with 2027 notes from Garanti quoted in the 60s and 2028 paper from Isbank and Agbank quoted in the 50s. The actual trading is generally thinner, however, and often above the quoted price. State-owned Halkbank faces a fine from the US Office of Foreign Assets Control over the gas for gold case. It's unclear at this stage how much the fine will be or when it will be imposed, although the bank's management said on its second quarter earnings call that it expects to be able to absorb any kind of fine. The Turkish financial sector faces risk of erosion of capital buffers as risk-weighted assets grow on the deteriorating FX, while credit quality of portfolio companies is likely to sour as they face their own issues driven by economy and currency. Furthermore, Spain's BBVA, Italy's Unicredit, and France's BNP Paribas results are also particularly exposed to the weak lira because of their ownership of Turkish banks. On other news, earnings season continued this week and German wind turbine manufacturers Senvion and Nordex both reported weak results. The bonds are trading below par with Senvion in the mid to high 80s and Nordex in the low to mid 90s. But during the investor calls, management of both companies said they are not considering bond buybacks. Senvion's bonds initially fell lower but Centerbridge, Senvian's shareholder, announced 62.5 million euro equity rate supporting the prices. The company has 938 million euros of the debt, mostly due in 2022, which means the company has some time to turn the corner and no immediate trigger. However, rising leverage currently at 9.1 turns and 7.8 turns on a net basis for investors. Nordex has currently 658 million of debt, mostly in loans, and is in compliance with its covenants. The group also has a large cash balance with net leverage at a mere 1.4 turns. Another credit in the spotlight was House of Fraser, and I have Chetna and Harvard with me to explain the situation. So the news that made headlines around the country on Friday was Sports Direct boss Mike Ashley buying House of Fraser's assets in a UK prepack administration for 90 million. The department store said it was going into administration with court hearings taking place to do so at around 7.30 a.m. that morning. This was because discussions with interested investors and the group's main secured creditors had failed, meaning that there was no solvent situation to be reached. The directors of the three operating companies, House of Fraser Stores Limited, House of Fraser Limited and James Beattie Limited, decided to ask administrators to come in. In terms of recoveries, secured creditors may recover about 23% of their investments based on 390 million of secured liabilities reported by the retailer in June in its CVA documents. It's important to note that an asset sale may have been the only viable option for House of Fraser if you think about the fact that it's in a financially distressed position and recently entered into administration 
after getting new financing arrangements with two schemes of arrangement and a CVA, which ultimately proved to be inadequate. The obvious benefits to a business and asset sale are that the buyer has control over which of the target's assets and liabilities it will acquire. Given no assets will transfer automatically, as with a share sale, the buyer will have scope to cherry pick the assets they're interested in and leave unwanted assets and liabilities behind, such as the unsecured debt and lease liabilities, which we'll turn to later. Other advantages include no financial promotion or financial assistance constraints and limited shareholder involvement. So going back to the House of Fraser situation, if we take a step back, Harvard, what were some of the milestones leading up to the administration filing and the ultimate change of ownership? So Rework first started covering House of Fraser at the beginning of uh, 2017 amid fears about the health of the UK economy and the buying power of the consumers after the country voted to leave the European Union six months earlier. Back then, the 2020 notes were quoted at about 90, so it wasn't that bad. Throughout last year, though, the House of Fraser notes have seesawed falling on the back of declining like and like for sales and EBITDA, but rising on the Chinese owner's willingness to inject cash into the business. They finished the year at about the same level. Things really took a turn at the beginning of this year after the company reported bleak holiday season sales and a credit insurer stopped covering about 20 suppliers for the department store chain. This reminds me of when Toys R Us um, last year, shortly before filing for freefall bankruptcy in the US, we saw in the news some uh, information about suppliers cutting shipments to toys. There are some similarities here too, not least because in the UK, the company tried to address some of its liquidity issues by entering into a CBA, but unfortunately for them, this was not successful enough to stop them from filing for administration later. Yes, so suppliers and insurance covers are really important for these retailers, and in March comes the bombshell. Hoff's majority Chinese owner Nanjing Xinjieko said it planned to sell a 51% ownership stake to Chinese tourism group Wuji um, Wenhua. Remember, it owned close to 90% of the br- British retailer. This change of control would trigger the 101 put from bondholders. A month later, the Chinese owner said it would also negotiate was ne- also negotiating with other potential buyers. And in May, Nanjing Xinjieko said Hong Kong listed C Banner instead of Wuji Wenhua was buying the stake in two steps for about 140 million in total. So at this point, they seem to have secured new money. They also wanted to do something about the rent cost situation, right? Yes, and, and I think in this CVA cycle, Huff resorted to this measure a bit too late and had challenged um, getting it completed. So if you look at New Look, they got their CVA done in March. For Huff, in June, the company announced its company voluntary arrangement to slash rent and uh, streamline its business by closing 31 stores, 
which the creditors approved later that month. But in July, a group of landlords actually challenged the CVA, citing unfair prejudice. So the landlords became more and more aware of what's happening,、um, all, as all these、uh, retailers use CVA to cut rent. Hoff and its landlords actually settled out of court earlier this month. Um, on the capital structure front, the company also sought to use English and Scottish schemes of arrangement to push out debt maturities, waive a change of control, and implement its new financing arrangements.、Um, both schemes were approved in July. And Harvard, I also remember reading about the group needing emergency loans because of House of Fraser's liquidity becoming an issue. What was the straw that broke the camel's back in this case? Yes, Chetna. So things really took a turn for the worse on July 31st, when the 2020 notes fell seven points to the low 60s after news reports、uh, came out about Mike Ashley of Sports Direct approaching Hoff to provide 50 million of、uh, new money, and also remember C Banner. Also delayed releasing information to its shareholder yet again for them to approve the capital in,、uh, for the capital raise. This is kind of worrisome. And one day later, on August first, the real trigger came. C Banner said that it had dropped its plan to raise money by issuing shares to fund the half stake purchase, because the Chinese White Knight stock had fallen to such levels that was impractical impractical for them to issue new shares to raise the money. I was checking C Banner stock earlier, and it was about at、um, 55 Hong Kong dollar cents, and that's less than one fourth of its value when the company said it's coming to Hoff's rescue in April. As you can imagine, in reaction to this, Hoff bonds collapsed 50% to a wide bid ask gap of 25.45, and soon after this, there were press reports about Mike Ashley, Philip Day, and. Elderly investors considering stepping in to stay, save the ailing group. And in the retail sector, of course, people know all about the impact of Amazon, other online vendors, and Brexit. What do you think went wrong for the company here? Well, most directly, you saw the Chinese White Knight failing to provide the new money to Hoff as it had promised, because C Banner itself was having problems and issues,、uh, and actually issued a profit warning. And if you look at Hoff's business, it's really a perfect storm. You had the struggling UK retail sector, and people I've spoken to also said, and if you have、um, been to a House of Fraser yourself, the department store's offerings don't really differentiate themselves from its competitors. So why should I come to you if you are no different? Than your than anybody else, so there's no and also there's no clear target customer base. Also, the management team has had lots of churn since Nanjing Xinjiaco bought it for an enterprise value of、um, 480 million、uh, four years ago. Lastly, maybe the retailer opened too many stores that face challenges making money, with the crushing rent costs making matters worse. You saw how it planned to close more than half of its fifty-nine、um, stores. So, on the twenty-three percent recovery for creditors, Harvard, what's the capital structure like, and are there any highlights from the waterfall? Yes, Chetna. So, on the capital structure, House of Fraser has about three hundred ninety million of debt in three slices, a hundred、um, million revolver if you assume it's fully drawn. 125 million of term loan and another 165 million of 2020 notes, all secured in perpetuity. 
On the two slices of bank debt, Hoff signed a 225 million senior facilities agreement three years ago with three banks, HSBC and London branches of Bank of China and Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. For these three portions of secure debt, Rework reported that the 90 million、uh, from Sports Direct will be used to pay them down. The lease liabilities will be left behind in the cap stack. The pensions and any others unsecured debt will be at the bottom of the waterfall and rank perpetual. For suppliers and concessionaires, there have been press reports about Philip Day actually urging Mike Ashley to put in another 70 million to pay suppliers and these、um, concession holders. You can imagine how they may only get a small fraction of、uh, their claims for recovery. On pensions, House of Fraser's retirement benefit obligation had a surplus of 28.5 million as of January 28, 2017, with about 675 million in pension assets and 646 million in liabilities. While this translates into a surplus, the actual pension claim can be more than the liabilities number on the balance sheet. Because the claim is what insurance companies think is the right number to take these on. For example, if you look at Carillion, the company reported a pension deficit about 600 million, and that number actually jumped to 1.4 billion in liquidation. As a result of this, if you、um, stress test that House of Fraser pension liabilities by increasing them by 25 percent, we get deficit about 133 million. Historically, pensions of bankrupt companies increased by much more, though close to 50 percent. We've seen press reports about House of Fraser having 160 million of pension shortfall. As we, we reported, the health、um, pension fund has not been taken on by the new owner, and so will be closely monitored and assessed by the、um, pension protection fund in light of the aforementioned numbers. So coming back to the present,、um, what are the latest developments on the retailer Harvard? There seems to be new information on the new owner's strategy and plans daily. So after a whirlwind of development on Friday, when you saw the company went into administration, and two or three hours later, Sports Direct bought the company. Mike Ashley actually said this week that Sports Direct would do its best to keep as many half stores open as possible. And remember, in the CVA plan, Half was set to close 31 stores out of its、um, 59 locations. Ashley told、um, news outlets this week that it, he would keep 80% of Half stores open. That's 47 locations. Sports Direct also engaged CBRE in relation to Half's property matters. Ashley also said he wanted to transform Half into the heralds of the high street. Guess we'll have to see what how that plays out. Thanks for that, Harvard and Chetna. Now let's move on to the ruling Gibbs. In this part of the Reorg Research podcast, we'll be discussing the status of a long-standing English common law rule, which is the ruling Gibbs. The rule is particularly relevant in restructuring and insolvencies, especially those with a cross-border element. The rule essentially prescribes that an English law debt can only be compromised or extinguished by an English court. The rule has been eroded by certain European regulations, but in a post-Brexit world, where such regulations can be less effective, the outlook looks less clear. 
new cases in both Singapore and the English High Court have provided some guidance and developments in other sources of international law, such as the UNCTRAL model law, which may also provide a solution. So, let's dive into the main discussion. Shan, what essentially is the rule in Gibbs and where does it originate from? The rule is an English common law rule, which prescribes that a debt which is governed by English law cannot be discharged or compromised by a foreign insolvency proceeding. This is regardless of whether the borrow, borrower or lender under such debt is located in a foreign jurisdiction or in England. The rule originates from an historical Court of Appeal case from 1890, Anthony Gibbs & Sons v. La Société Industrielle et Commerciale de Metal. The rule in Gibbs stretches back over 150 years and is the most frequently cited authority for the general proposition that a debt governed by English law cannot be discharged or compromised by a foreign insolvency proceeding. Despite the case receiving criticism, the rule has been repeatedly applied at all levels of the courts of England and Wales without adverse comment. Many practitioners do not consider the rule to be relevant in contemporary cross-border insolvency proceedings, given the continuing trend towards recognition of foreign insolvency proceedings. It is argued that the nature of the rule does not fit with the trends adopted by other states in insolvency law. The US, for example, has historically enforced foreign court judgments made in foreign proceedings, including where the foreign judgment amends or extinguishes US law debt. Recognition is usually granted under Chapter 15 of the Bankruptcy Code. And how has the rule been eroded or bypassed historically? The rule has been eroded in the UK by the agreement of international treaties on the recognition of foreign judgments, such as the Insolvency Regulation, the Brussels Regulation, and the Cross-Border Insolvency Regulations 2006, which can train the UNCTRAL model law. Both the European regulations, the Insolvency and Brussels Regulation, provide for automatic recognition and enforcement of the judgments of the court of a foreign member state in any other member state. The regulations are used by insolvency practitioners in Europe and in jurisdictions which have adopted the model law so that their local judgments are given effect in the English courts. Practitioners have therefore been able to bypass the rule in Gibbs using the recognition arrangements afforded by such cross-border treaties. The foreign court judgment which attempts to amend or extinguish an English law debt can bypass the rule in Gibbs using the recognition rights contained within them. Similarly, because the treaties provide for reciprocity, foreign courts have provided automatic recognition to the judgments of the UK courts. With English laws schemes of arrangement, for example, jurisdiction is assumed to be found under the Brussels regulation, making them enforceable automatically across member states. And so why is the rule in Gibbs relevant now? Both the Brussels regulation and the insolvency regulation are drafted to provide automatic recognition in respect of proceedings opened in or judgments given in member states. 
Now, the reference to member states is important, as once Brexit has taken place, the UK will no longer be a member state and therefore will no longer benefit from automatic recognition and enforcement of the judgments of its courts under the European regulations. This means that a practitioner in the UK who obtains a judgment in the English courts relating to a debt will not be granted automatic recognition of that judgment in other European member states' courts. Domestic legislation will not be able to compel foreign courts to recognise English law judgments or orders made by an English court. In order for the UK to benefit from automatic recognition in other member states, it would have to negotiate a position with the EU and its member states so that they can continue to recognise English insolvency proceedings and judgments. There seems to be three possible outcomes following Brexit. A best case, a base case and a worst case scenario. And in terms of the three possible outcomes, what is the best case scenario? So in the best case scenario, both the Brussels regulation and the insolvency regulation will remain part of English domestic law and the English courts can continue to enforce and recognise relevant foreign judgments from member states. All member states agree to interpret the reference to member states in each of the European regulations as including the UK. The status quo of reciprocity of recognition and enforcement continues with no other action needed. The English courts can continue to effectively compromise and extinguish foreign debt and the member states' courts can continue to bypass the rule in Gibbs. Now this outcome is wishful thinking and probably unlikely. The remaining member states are unlikely to grant such a concession to the UK. And on the other side of the spectrum, what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is the highly unlikely situation where the UK repeals both of the European regulations. This means that foreign member states' court judgments would not gain automatic recognition and would have to rely on other international treaties, such as the model law implemented by the cross-border insolvency regulation or the principles of international comity, which would not be as the law currently stands, sufficient to bypass the rule in Gibbs. Under this scenario, the European member states would not afford UK judgments recognition without their relying on another international arrangement. This, come is, this outcome is very unlikely again and would create quite the dire situation for international cross-border restructurings. And in terms of the base case, what is the base case scenario which is the most likely outcome? The most likely outcome is that both the Brussels regulation and the insolvency regulation remain part of UK domestic law and the English courts continue to enforce and recognise relevant foreign judgments from member states. Member states will continue to interpret the reference to member states in each of the European regulations to include just member states 
meaning not the UK post-Brexit. The UK will therefore have to adopt one of the following approaches to obtain recognition of its judgments in Europe. Negotiate bilateral treaties with each individual member state. This is likely to be extremely time-consuming and result in piecemeal solutions. It could rely on other international legislation, such as the model law, or it could rely on the principles of international comity and universalism, under which foreign courts could be persuaded to recognise UK judgments. So let's have a more detailed look at the base case, which is the most likely scenario. Firstly, how would the model law feature in that case? Well, the cross-border insolvency regulations, 2006, contain the Yun-Sitwell model law. Recognition under the model law is the same in scope and effect as if the company had been made the subject of a winding up order under the Insolvency Act 1986. In other words, there's a moratorium on proceedings and on the, on the enforcement of orders by way of execution on the company's assets, and the right to dispose of or encumber the company's assets will be suspended in the English jurisdiction. In theory, this sounds great. The model law appears to provide another way for practitioners to bypass the ruling Gibbs and dodge some of the issues of Brexit. However, let's look at how the model law has been treated in two recent UK cases, both of which are subject to appeal in the English Court of Appeal later this year. In the restructurings of both Agricor and the International Bank of Azerbaijan, EBA, foreign representatives have sought recognition of their foreign proceedings in the English High Court under the CBIR and sought to rely on the benefits conferred by such recognition. Agricor's foreign representative was successful in obtaining recognition of, his, of its extraordinary administration proceedings in England. Spurbank, in the first challenge of its kind, was unsuccessful in resisting Agricor's application, arguing that the extraordinary administration proceedings were not the type of proceedings that should be recognised under the modern law. His Honour Judge Paul Matthews, having hearing the Agricor case, explained the tests that must be passed by an applicant seeking recognition under the CBIR in English courts. Importantly, the judge found nothing in the CBIR to prevent recognition of a foreign proceeding which in the foreign court involved a group of companies. But in the English court, where recognition related only to an individual debtor. In the case of EBA, EBA had sought to extend its moratorium past the termination of its, of its restructuring proceedings in order to prevent certain creditors with English law governed debt from enforcing against its assets after the moratorium expired. EBA has had its restructuring approved by the court in Azerbaijan. However, two creditors of the bank, who held English law governed debt, disagreed with the terms of the restructuring and sought to enforce their claims against EBA's assets. EBA's foreign representative therefore sought to indefinitely extend the moratorium granted to it 
during the bank's restructuring. Such an extension was requested in order to prevent EBA's English creditors from enforcing their claims against EBA's assets after the termination of the restructuring. Justice Hiljard, having heard arguments from Daniel Bayfield QC on behalf of the foreign representative, concluded that he was bound by the Court of Appeal precedent set in the rule in Gibbs. The judgment explains that the rule in Gibbs provides that a debt governed by English law cannot be discharged by a foreign insolvency proceeding. The, deci the decision of His Honour Judge Matthews in Agricor demonstrates that the English courts are willing to broadly recognise foreign proceedings under the model law and do not have too high a hurdle for the types of proceedings that will be granted recognition. But, as demonstrated by the first instant decision in EBA, this cross-border insolvency regulation in its current form appears to lack the teeth to do anything more than grant breathing space to a debtor while it implements a binding restructuring. Further, Justice Hilliard held in the EBA case that the cross-border insolvency regulation cannot bypass the rule in Gibbs. So the model law as currently drafted provides mainly for coordination and assistance among courts and not for the recognition and enforcement of foreign insolvency judgments. Consequently, it's unlikely to provide a definitive solution in its current form. The Uncitral Working Group 5 met in Vienna in December 2017 to discuss possible new legislation. The group produced a draft model law on cross-border recognition and enforcement of insolvency-related judgments. This legislation would provide that where an insolvency-related foreign judgment has effect and can be enforced in its originating state, then it should be recognised in all states adopting the model law. The draft goes considerably further than the cross-border insolvency regulation in providing for both recognition and enforcement, echoing the powers in both the Brussels regulation and the insolvency regulation. With uncertainty facing the European regulations in England, the cross-border insolvency regulations interpretation and effect in the English courts is likely to become of greater importance to creditors. New treaties produced by UNCITRAL will also provide assistance to the jurisdiction, although it is worth noting that not all other EU member states have adopted the model law. Currently, it is only Greece, Poland, Romania and Slovenia. Moving away from the model law, the UK legislation after Brexit could instead take a much more aggressive stance and echo the Singaporean approach, as decided in the case of Pacific Andes Resources Development. In taking this approach, the UK would have to prevent, present English law as the most appropriate way to restructure the debt obligations in a structure. This can be done by extending the sufficient connection test and permit English courts to apply foreign law and permit debt discharge on the basis of COMI above the choice of governing law.
Thanks, Shan. So in terms of conclusions, it seems like the overwhelming view on the rule in Gibbs is that it's outdated. The rule appears to give creditors with English law governed debt an unfair holdout right in a restructuring, such as in the EBA case. Further, holding on to the rule is against the trend adopted internationally, which is a movement towards universalism. The US court, with Chapter 15, and also the most recent de decision in Singapore, the Pacific Andes case, have sought to move away from Gibbs. Further, the newly envisioned UNCITRAL legislation is likely to be far-reaching enough to mean that the ruling Gibbs is likely to be repudiated. Speaking extrajudicially at the International Insolvency Institute annual conference in London last year, Lord Neuberger, the then President of the Supreme Court, gave the keynote speech entitled The Supreme Court, the Privy Council and the International Insolvency. Casting further doubt on the Gibbs principle, Lord Neuberger said, any discussion of the tension between universalism and territorialism must also face up to the long embedded principle of English law established by the Court of Appeal. There are more powerful arguments for revisiting this common law principle in any event, said the Lord, citing amongst others the Pacific Andes case. In conclusion, it seems that the time is fast approaching for the ruling Gibbs to be set aside or permanently eroded by legislation, particularly if the UK is expecting reciprocal recognition of its judgments in member state courts following Brexit. Podcast listeners are advised to watch out for the Court of Appeal hearing and subsequent decision on the EBA decision. With new legislation coming into force in the Netherlands, prescribing new scheme like restructuring tools, which are likely to threaten London's dominance as the centre for restructuring in Europe, practitioners will be watching developments closely as Brexit continues. Thanks for that, Chetna, Shannon and Harvard. And we will be back next week.